My name is Rosa O'Leary. I am a periodontist. I work in London. And I have been supporting uh, Siobhan uh, in the Ikigai series of lectures and hands-on uh, in 2021. Thank you, Ross. Hi, everybody. My name is Siobhan Kelleher. I'm a dental hygienist, a qualified coach, an Ikigai educator, and I also coordinate the Ikigai Oral Hygiene Programme. Well, we got out and about last year, Ross, and it was great to have the live sessions, wasn't it? How did you find them? Well, I thought I really enjoyed it because it were they were one of the first, you know, face to face meetings that we had had for like nearly a year and a half to two. Um, and you forget just how exciting being in a room with people in a kind of learning environment, but also a kind of a community um, and you chat to people and you learn and it's it's absolutely stimulating. And I thought they were such a, they were a joyous occasion actually. Different to before. And do you think it's because it heightened our awareness just how special it was to get into a room and network and share our stories really from the last couple of years? Oh, I agree because, you know, you take for granted. We've always, you know, trotted along to meetings, met people. Sometimes we go out of almost duress. Um, so this was very much an elective process. We went there um, and it was new and it was exciting. And it kind of felt good to be back to our old life in a way. Um, and I suppose like everything, you don't know what you what you miss till, till it's gone. Um, and this was definitely a case of, oh, I really used to, you know, I really miss meeting other people. Absolutely. Such a good environment. Yeah. And our aim has been to support dental hygienists and therapists, and we also have dentists coming on our courses and involved in our webinars. One, the aim was really to give that support, so to upskill, you know, in hands-on instrumentation, and I suppose emotionally to have that support network around as well, because... Although COVID has heightened awareness again around that we all need supportive networks, really in dentistry up to a few years ago, there wasn't really anything like this. And the reports that are coming back in from the evaluations are saying that it's very important. Did you feel that on the courses? Were you getting that kind of feedback? Well, I mean, I've thought a lot about it since then. And, and I, one of the things I feel about hygienists is that hygienists sometimes take too much responsibility. They feel they should be able to do everything. They feel that despite not having sometimes enough information, radiographs, et cetera, et cetera, that somehow or another, they should be able to be all things to all people. And they, one of the aims for me is to try and make them feel that they are very much part of a team and that they also need to reach out to other members of the team. If you want to sort of really look after people, it is very much a team effort. And so it's to give people confidence to be able to say, yes, this is the situation. This is what I can do. I might need something else. And if you don't have a confident workforce, they tend to be reticent about really kind of demanding what they need to be able to provide the service that the patient wishes and they wish to provide. So by be meeting other people and talking to other people and going to the lectures and doing the hands-on, they 
increase their own knowledge, but again, their confidence about where they sit within their profession, how they can expand their knowledge, how can they, they do things differently or how they can do things better. And that's what I felt was really the, the crux of the meetings. And that's why I feel that it is very much a process for their development. Um, and as you say, upskilling, all of that kind of thing. But if you are confident in your position, you make better judgments than if you do things out of fear or not wanting to bother people. Do you, yes. do you understand what I mean? Yes, I do. And what you're saying there about, you know, the communication or not taking on the full responsibility, it can be quite difficult in practice because I've worked in several different situations and, you know, I would, I, I know when I need to go back to a team member or to a principal or associate and say that this, this is beyond my remit, but often met with resistance there, Ross. So, yes. Know. Now, and I, and I, and again, it, it like everything to do with team working is team working and there are different personalities and we all have to navigate how to deal with different personalities. But if, if you are, sort of professionally aware, if you know the rules and regulations under which you are governed and which you will be judged, if you are confident in that and you are, um, you, you know what you can do, you can then more easily discuss with other people from a sort of almost a medical legal perspective, which isn't really how you want to do things, but if it comes to that, you have to make people aware that this is how this case will be judged and certain things are missing and I will need support. It doesn't always necessarily mean that you can't deal with it. It's just like, do you have enough radiographs? Do you have enough time? Do you, you know, do you need the support of, you know, what other kinds of support would you need to manage this patient? It isn't always that it's outside your remit, but you shouldn't be asked to work with your hands tied behind your back with, no radiographs or no time to do a charting or you know all those kind of things but yeah time is huge time is huge time is huge often when I um, joined a new practice and I could see you know there was no systems or protocols in place I would ask for them to call a meeting just in a very nice way and just say look I can see how we can do things a little bit easier here and just spend that time to educate the team and say, look, we need to call appointments certain names. We all need to know what's going on when we first look at the book, because sometimes there'll just be a book full of 30 minutes. No differentiation between maintenance, supportive therapy. And just to even educate the team around that, I used to find was very helpful. It wouldn't always work out. And often, you know, for whatever reason, you know, people don't come on board, but in general, they do when you open up and educate the team. I agree. And I think that, you, you know, you can try and force people, but it's it's never the way to work. It's never the way to work as part of a team. But if you can uh, educate the team and impress upon them the importance here uh, of treating patients effectively, of course, time is always a constraint and we all we all work under that. But as you say, if you have a book full of 30 minute appointments and, you know, some patients take 10 minutes to get in the door and out the door, you know, I mean, it, it, it's like, where are you left with 
the time to be able to deliver the care. And, we, and I keep saying, if this was your sister or this was your mother or whatever, is this how you would want them to be treated? And within the limitations of time, you will only feel proud of yourself at the end of the day if you feel that you have given people the care that they deserve or think they're getting. And so that is it. And it is a challenge for sure. Um, but as you say, calling appointments, different things and trying desperately to move away from this 30 minute, 30 minute, 30 minute thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um and given more time, and even for the clinicians themselves, their back and their shoulders and, every, and everything, yes. it's, it's hard work doing every 30 minutes, isn't it? It's, I, I mean, mean, also it, from the patient's it, point of view, if you can build value into that appointment in the, in the education, getting the radiographs out, you know, showing them the yes. whole thing and co-creating co that appointment with the patient, I've never had anyone turn around and say, no, I won't have that 45, I won't have that hour appointment with you. I think that when patients think that it is all about scaling, um, they, you know, that sort of concept of just get on and scale my teeth. Um, if that's their vision of a, a maintenance or a hygienist appointment, then, then it is very challenging uh, because they're not valuing your role. But I suppose it is your role to try and educate them to make them understand that actually this that is only a part of the role and I mean oral hygiene instruction itself takes ages Absolutely. Um, for, and so if you have a even say you have a 30 minute appointment that's a 25 minute appointment if you're going yeah. to do any kind of decon this is even before COVID and it's five minutes to get a patient in and out the door so you're now down to a 20 minute appointment so I mean if you sort of think about it Oral hygiene instruction for lots of patients takes 10 minutes and assessment is going to take a minimum of five minutes. So theoretically, if you were to do that, that leaves you with literally five or seven minutes to do the so-called scaling. Um, and you can see that the balance of the appointment is completely wrong. And it is also taking away the responsibility from the patient because it's you're doing, you're scaling, you're doing the job. Um, whilst it should be, I'm helping you, I'm going to clean your teeth, I'm going to scale this, I'm going to do this, but your role in it is actually more important. And in, in ideally, the, the appointment should be managed that way, but of course, you know, everything is a compromise. Yeah, I certainly agree. Just going back to the courses and the hands-on and the various uh, piezo tips, because I know when I qualified, we had one small kind of uh, chunky little ultrasonic tip and then we relied on hand scalers and it's amazing how time has moved on and these fabulous tips that we have what did you think of the various tips we were using well I thought no when I did my dissertation 100 years ago I did a <laughs> dissertation on ultrasonics so I thought I knew um, about ultrasonics and ultrasonic tips so I was kind of aghast at my lack of knowledge uh, and my lack of understanding, one about how they actually do work and how much time we waste using these things, these tips incorrectly, the wrong part of the tip, the wrong angle, you know, so, you know, and then we're leaning into it when of course yeah. you should never do that. So 
I was fascinated to realize that I don't need to be putting half the elbow grease into the thing um, okay. at all for it to be actually working better. Than, so that was the first thing I learned uh, is positioning tips and how you visualize the tip around the root. You know, different parts of the roots are concave, different parts yes. of the roots are convex. Um, some parts are flat, some parts are incredibly rounded. And, and yes, the one size fits all is therefore going to be incredibly challenging. I, the thing I liked about the course is that you pinned it down to a few tips because it is a total minefield, the, 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 the situation of tips. I mean, there's so it's about many- 70, about yeah. 70. That's, that's, that's too much choice for anybody. It's too confusing. And also the, the, the similarities and differences between lots of them must be so small that we may not necessarily really understand. So by narrowing it down to, a, how many did we have? We had about six. Five. Uh, five to six yeah so yeah. we have 16 educators and we all like various tips so we all got together yes. and we decided to put what could what could work for a full mouth debridement and yes. then our maintenance so we have the g tips for general and the p for perio and that's where we come up with those but it really worked didn't it i do yes. think it was really successful I, yeah i really um and as i said for people like me who really thought that they knew it all um it was quite enlightening to realize that no, you don't know it all. And, and actually, isn't that another thing about going to any course, especially kind of hands-on, even when you go there thinking that you know it all, it, you will often come away with new snippets of information. And even if they're just a few things, they can make such a difference. And uh, so I thought that was absolutely fascinating uh, and really highlighted my lack of knowledge. Really? And then... Yeah. With some of the evaluations were quite funny, actually. Like one of them was, after 20 years, I now know how to use a piezo tip. Well, it's a bit like me and it's more than 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so there's not, you know, I, I, I'm, with, I'm with that person. Um, yeah, but it's just, I suppose, with the machines and feedback loops, what you're saying to take that pressure off the joints as well. Yes, because I exactly. do see on the forums, there's quite a lot of people, you know, carpal uh, tunnel syndrome. Yeah, kind of RSIs, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, so just you, learning how to use this equipment, because they have, you know, they're so efficient now, aren't they? Yes. You know, compared yes. to probably what I would have trained with, or maybe perhaps what you would have trained with. Oh, for sure. So, and then we have the air polishing. What yes. did you think of the air polishing? The air polishing is great. Actually, one of the things I thought was fantastic about the course was the, um, uh, the you know, the egg and the candle and all the rest of it. I thought they were great because they, um, uh, trying to remove the stain off things and showing how different angles affect, you know, sometimes you can have that air polishing thing blasting away, but if it's, too close to the thing it's really only sort of touching a point so by utilizing something as simple as a little egg it really helps you to see what angle you really need to be using it at and the distance because too far away clearly it's no good to do at all but you know again when we're 
you know, when you're working and you're desperately trying to achieve something, we sometimes, it's a bit like with the, the scalers, we hold them too tightly, we tense up all our muscles, everything, yes. you know, and we think that just, you know, brute force is going to manage this when, of course, it isn't at all. And so in the same way with the air polisher, you know, by kind of almost kind of blasting the thing too close to it, we somehow think that this is going to work better. But when you look at the how that happens, you realize that's actually completely the wrong approach. Um, so again, yeah. I thought it, it, it teaches you how to use these things in the most almost light fingered, creative way, but you're achieving more. Achieving more and having your body nice and relaxed. Yes. Yeah. Because and, and, you know, years ago, I was just thrown an, you know, an air polishing device. You know, when I think back about it, there was not really any training around that time years ago. No. No, but, but I don't think that, but also the expectations for those things were different. It was just a case of blast a bit of stain away. Blasting, um, yeah. Yeah, and there was, the biofilm yeah, there was yes. no concept of the biofilm. There was no concept of, you know, its role in anything other than stain removal. And yes, it removed the stain from the chair as well as everything else by the time <laughs> you do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um kind of a facial as well for us but, oh my god and you could yeah, taste it and everything yeah it was brutal just it was just a, you know it was incredibly rudimentary and and yes and so the concepts have changed let's you know so the 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 tools are following the concept in a way so the concept of biofilm removal rather than you know gouging bits of the tooth out have enable these types these bits of kit to come along and to be used in a much more gentle way you know yeah. um, if you were using air polishing on somebody four times a year in that old-fashioned way I mean I think it would be actually quite destructive in a way but this is so gentle and also you know it's used in a different way you're away from the gingiva you're not going to end up sort of abrading the whole gingival margin which you could easily have done with those old-fashioned with those um, old powders and that yeah, actually yeah. also is really important to understand what powders you're using so subgingival powders that they largely i just use subgingival powders yeah. for everything now because why not use a nice talc like keep your patient nice and happy as well and also healthy yeah. but rarely do i pick up a super gingival uh, powder and, and I, I mean, perhaps if somebody had had ortho bands on and they hadn't kind of cleaned their teeth, maybe they might need some of the super gingival powders. But the sub gingival powders are actually very effective at stain removal. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. If you use the right angle and the right distance, you can actually be very effective and not try and overcompensate with bad technique because it's not going to actually help not going to help yeah and moving on to your lectures that went down fantastically ross yes so i know in the uk you covered the direct access as well in ireland unfortunately we don't have direct access hmm. but you were lo looking at the, you know treating perio in practice and our role within that tell us a, just a little bit of an overview about that presentation please well, the presentation on active hygiene management is a little bit like I was talking about in the beginning. Um, it's not a, it's not a lecture about what to do. It's not a technique lecture. It's a, a lecture to look at the patient journey and how they are managed 
from initial presentation to treatment, to reassessment, to hopefully maintenance. And it's to look at the hygienist's role in that and what they should, what we can expect them to be able to deal with and what may not necessarily be within their remit and what they might have to reach out and ask other members of the team for help. Um, it's also to, um, for them to understand their duty of care, they need to understand rules and regulations around where they are um, uh, being governed, um, how they're, how somebody from outside would view their treatment planning process. Because I say to everyone, not every treatment plan goes well, not every treatment plan works, not every tooth is saved. But if you have made a proper diagnosis from the outset, you have a good idea whether it's likely or otherwise, the patient is in on the whole process and, and you can have an expected outcome. And if that is where you expected it to be, great. If it's not, then we need to be reflective about, is it us, is it the patient, is it, did we not control for various things? And so rather than kind of blindly saying, this patient has periodontal disease, I'm going to do X, and then it's just going to go to maintenance or it's, you know, wherever it's going to go back to six something. That is sometimes the case. But if then as I, as an external examiner, look at it and think, why have you put this patient on a six month recall when the patient has poor oral hygiene or whatever, whatever, uh, or, you know, a mouthful of six millimeter pockets, would you not have felt that that was still unstable? So it's to be able to look at that whole process and, and reflect you know, reflect at the, yeah. you know, look at the beginning, see what you can expect, talk to the patient, get them involved, and then reflect back and see how it is. And raw, I, my biggest issue, I think, with sort of hygiene management is that sometimes they, they lack that sort of reflection. And I do remember in one lecture asking people, I can't remember exactly what it was, was about, you know, and now you're going to bring this patient back in six months time. And I said, well, what are the factors that would determine whether this patient was should come back in six months time or three? And I didn't feel that some of the times those answers were clear cut enough. And there are a myriad of answers, but I, I, I didn't feel that everybody was kind of super clued in to the factors that determine stability or not stability. Uh, an engaged patient and you know I, I'm a fan of the term but you know what I mean a non-engaged patient or, or and how this is going to be managed ad infinitum because that's sometimes the problem not the treatment itself it's it's the maintenance yes, um, yeah, yeah. and and you know we see patients um, and medical legally see patients and they've been saying you know I've been seeing a hygienist every three months four months six months for the last five years and and now this and and that is disappointing because Either the hygienist isn't aware, either the hygienist is doing their best, but they're and they know they're not getting anywhere, but they don't have the confidence to do something about it. And that's where I come in. You know, if you have the confidence to understand that this isn't going where you feel it should be, then it's time to make a change. So it's to get off that treadmill of, I'll see you in, even if it's, I'll see you in three months time, I'll see you in three months time. At some point, you have to sit back and think, is this, is this okay? When was the last time we had a radiograph of that lower left seven? You know, yes. um, 
Because, and especially things like with vocation involvement, you know, you can be probing those all you like, but you've no idea really what's happening. You know, you don't, yeah. And sometimes you take a radiograph and you think, oh my God, it's gotten so much worse. And I didn't know. And this happens to, to all of us. But if, if the patient goes to another dentist and says, I, you know, another practice, and I've been seeing the hygienist, blah, 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 blah. And then they take some radiographs and things are so much worse. And you had no idea. And that is a problem. Yeah. And the feedback has been that people have felt a lot more confident to yeah. bring these cases back to, you know, readdress the whole situation. Call the principal, the associate, the, dent the referring dentist, you know, or if it's direct access to reach out to the periodontist, which is something I would like to touch base with you today. Yeah. The relationship with the periodontist is very important, your local periodontist. And yeah. it's something that people sometimes don't know how to address. I personally, when I relocate, would touch base with the local periodontist and meet them or have a chat with them and say, what do you want from me? I, I think I'm probably pretty good at knowing when to refer, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's what does the periodontist want from me as a hygienist? So I think I remember, Ross, you like to see the patient before they we even touched them. You just wanted some oral hygiene instruction done, didn't you? Yeah. Where some yes. periodontists maybe want some form of debridement done first. What's your thoughts on that? Well, um, for what I would prefer to avoid is somebody coming to me and saying, I have seen the hygienist for four times and I've done this, that and the other. And then I take some radiographs and I think, okay, there's still some calcus there. Still thing. So I'm going to start to do something uh, you know, not the same, but similar. So that to the patient, they sort of think, I've just been seeing the hygienist. I've seen the hygienist multiple times. So I think to avoid that, yeah. if, and again, you know, nothing is black and white. You see a patient and you make a judgment as a hygienist that I can manage this or, you know, it's 50-50 or not a chance. So not a chance, oral hygiene instruction, send it to me because we're going to have to start. I have a good chance of getting this, then why would you be doing anything other than your level best? You talk to the patient. The 50-50 ones will often depend on if it's a young patient, if you don't feel you have enough radiographs, if you would really like, you know, you're a bit worried that this isn't kind of where, you know, is there something else going on, et cetera, et cetera. Then I think a discussion with the patient is your best bet and say, well, we can do this, but then, you know, the usual um so again by and i've overused this word confident but a confident hygienist will know what's well within their remit they will know what's well outside their remit and the in-between bits can vary but i think that if you are knowledgeable going into that you have you know and take the patient along with you then it's easier to say but no i don't want somebody who has uh, you know, a mouthful of 10 millimeter pockets, having seen the hygienist for, you know, four to six times, and then I'm going to look at it and think I'm still going to need to do some debridement, et cetera, et cetera, because they will look at me and say, well, I've just seen her. So just that I think is, yeah. yeah, because, and 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 yes, you want to sort of say, well, what's the difference, et cetera, but it, it's best to kind of avoid that. Whilst if you can, as a hygienist, get it to a point where they had a mouthful of sort of eight millimeter pockets at the beginning, but now they only have two or three remaining, Yes. then that's much easier for me to say, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but then if there's still a lot of calculus visible on new radiographs, then we're back to square one. So again, how confident are you? How good is your initial information? 
I mean, I, I keep going back to this. What are your radiographs like at the beginning? Because you might be working off a couple of bite wings. Um, and, you know, the distal of the lower sevens are not going to be anywhere near visible or the anterior teeth are not visible or whatever it is. So you can still do the best you can. But for me, yes, I would prefer uh, if you think it's a severe case just to refer it. Uh, but if you think you have a good chance, get on and do what you can. And if there's a couple of bits left over, then we can deal with them. Yeah. One of the situations um, that I've come up with the local periodontist is I suggest the patient that they go for the treatment plan that I would probably be involved in doing some of that treatment and she'll be involved. And I get a lovely, very clear letter back mm -hmm. saying Siobhan, you know, the dentist's name and what she's going to do. And we all know what our part yes. in this is. Um, and it's the it works really well, you know, maybe that's something that if somebody else, you know, another hygienist or therapist wanted to suggest that to their local periodontist, that might work too. I, now, I agree. And yeah. if you know that, so when I used to work in a much bigger practice, uh, I worked with some hygienists um, for many, many years. And for, yes, and sometimes I would be referred cases by the dentist and I would think, hmm, I think, I think that, you know, this is well within the remit of one of the hygienists here or whatever. So instead of me seeing the patient, I would actually send it to the hygienist and say, uh, here's the charting, here are the radiographs, this is what I want you to do. So, um, and even now in, in the practice I work in, if I, if I feel that, you know, because like some, pet, some dentists will refer cases that are not necessarily that advanced, you know, okay. um, and so, I sort of look at it and think, what is the value of them seeing me when I know that there's a very good hygienist who can who can do that? Um, and I, actually, I think hygienists would be much better if they had all the information to start with. So when your periodontist refers back to you, you get all the information, get all the information. information to start with. And so you're moving from a position of power mm -hmm. rather than a position of a lack of knowledge. Um, and, and, and that's where I keep going back to again and again, what what where are you coming from are you kind of sticking your head up above the ground and saying i'm doing the best i can i'm doing the best i can but i don't really know what i'm dealing with or are you saying well now there this is the situation and it's this that and the other i'm going to do that and then i'm going to do that and then i'm going to reassess and then somebody else might have to do something else that's a position of power as opposed to you know treading water and hoping for the best yeah and that it's nice teamwork to do that isn't it yes. you do feel more part of that team and yes. it definitely opens up the conversation more for the patient and the patients love it. They like yes. to be part of, you know, of this team as well. As I said earlier, co-creating the appointments as well. Yeah, no, I think it's a, and also it, it brings the hygienist um, role into, into the mix at a much earlier stage, which is a good thing because yeah. one way or another, the long-term management of this case, whatever the outcome, is going to be dependent on the hygienist-patient relationship. And as I've said it earlier, the maintenance phase, how it is done, what is done, how frequently it is done, uh, the role of the patient, can sometimes be the real determinant in terms of long-term retention of teeth. You know, some people can do fantastic surgeries and all the rest of it, but we all know the patient who rocks up every three months, who does their best with their hygiene, who doesn't smoke, has controlled diabetes, and a hygienist who has enough time and information 
to be able to get into those residual pockets, because there will always be some, and to be able to devote the time to those and to be able to reflect on how they're doing. Yes. Those cases will generally do better. Whilst yeah. if it's a kind of I'm trying my best and just blasting everything in hope that something is going to work, is it's a hit and miss scenario. Sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. And going to your other presentation, just to bring in while we're talking about this, um, is the pharmacology. And, you know, there's some complex medical histories there with our perio patients, isn't there? And I know you always smile when I, and even when I asked you to do the pharmacology. But it's just an area that we don't get to upskill in, Ross, you know, and, you know, you kind of just sometimes you're kind of wondering to yourself, am I up to date? Do I know what the up to date evidence is? Where do I go and look for this? And that's what was really helpful about your presentations. And the evaluations really did come back to say that that we were right to do that, you know. Well, I think it is. Um... Okay, it's one of my pet subjects, so it's not, you know, I have a, you know, I'll confess to having an interest in pharmacology and have always read it. Um, but I am often horrified by the, and I'm not talking about hygienists, by some dentist's lack of knowledge as well um, in um, both the sort of complex medical histories that they're treating, um, but, but also how it can impact the, the patient's sort of oral health as well. That's very varied. Now, hygienists are much better uh, uh, clued into the role of, um, you know, health, oral health and systemic health. I think they are pretty, pretty, pretty well aware, actually. Well, some dentists really aren't. But again, as I will often say to them in the lecture, what do you say to a patient when they have these complex medical histories? Because my big thing about all professionals is that we are professionals. And therefore, when you stand in front of a patient, you want to act like a professional. And a professional has knowledge. And so when a patient says to you, I'm taking X, Y, and Z, rather than you going, okay, where, like, does anybody know anything? You can then turn around and say, oh, so, you know, you have blood pressure, is it well controlled, blah, 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 how old your diabetes, when was the last time you was checked, you know, how, you know, you ask information about it because you, you could, but you can only ask information about it if you have some knowledge. So somebody sort of says they've just finished chemotherapy or whatever, and you instead of kind of go okay and just putting it in the notes, you sort of you know you can talk to them about where what stage they're at. Uh, are they still seeing the, the the multidisciplinary team? Do they have any dry mouths? Do they you know all of those things? And if if as a professional you ask professional questions, I think that the patient views you very differently. Um, or if somebody is about to start chemotherapy and or they're about to start treatment on bisphosphonates or whatever, if you off your own back come out and say, well, now there is a low risk, but this, that and the other that, you know, we want to try and avoid extractions. We really want to keep your mouth as healthy as possible. So I think we need to go into overdrive now before you start this. I think that works so much better. And how the patient perceives you as the professional really goes up. You are a, a fellow professional. Yes, they're seeing some medical people, but they're seeing you to try and make sure that their mouth is so healthy that these drugs are not going to cause the major problems down the line. Yes, and you know, there's uh, that point of contact now. I don't know if you have that in yeah. the UK, but here not. Yeah, so it's another point of contact, isn't it, for picking that up with the patient yes. as well? Yeah, and it's also telling patients that my role is not 
just cleaning your teeth. Yes. And we have to move away from that yeah. because that's where the time thing, you know, just clean my teeth type thing. You are a, a dental hygienist therapist of which your role is to clean teeth, but it's to educate you about oral health, your oral health, how that relates to your general health, how certain bits of your systemic health or medications could impact your oral health. And your role as an educator is there to tell patients because some patients you know, are put on bisphosphonates by their doctor and they have never been told that it could possibly ever have any effect. Some are put on amlodipine without ever being told that they could get gingival hyperplasia. Um, so you as the point of contact are the person to say, oh, I see you're taking amlodipine. How, what dosage? How long have you been on it? Let me have a look. There's a risk of this, that, and the other. And so you involve the patient in their oral health and you know, it, it makes your job more interesting, but it also um, really improves your standing in there, in how they see you rather than just, you know, clean my teeth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. So where is the future? And everybody keeps uh, uh, often asks me, ikigai, or they can't pronounce it or whatever. And um, just a yes, little bit exactly What is it? I mean, I know you've <laughs> oh, well, explained it before, but... Okay, in a nutshell. Yeah. So, yeah, in a nutshell. Well, there, there are five blue zones in the world. And lifestyle medicine are really looking at these blue zones. But, you know, they live to be beyond 100. But when they live to be beyond 100, they live in full health. So what they okay. went to these areas and had a look, and it's all to do with, you know, physical activity, nutrition, so social support, and so on. So, you know, I keep going back to the social support, but in one of the areas in Japan, in Okinawa, they have this thing called Ikigai. And Ikigai is your, your purpose, why you jump out of bed in the morning. And when Gemma O'Callaghan and I first seen the Venn diagram, you know, what do you love? What does the world need? They say in the Western world, what can you get paid for? In the Eastern world, don't like that. They say that they see that more as an energy back. You know, what are you okay. really good at? And then in between that is your mission, um, your passion and vocation. <laughs> that really hit me because I think <laughs> within dentistry, it is it it really is a vocation, isn't it? You know, we we are so passionate about looking after our patients and making, you know, for prevention and keeping them in full health. And so Ikigai, really, the oral hygiene program is about, again, that upskilling, but keeping that supportive network. And there's lots of educators and mentors, you know, particularly for new graduates, if they want to reach out and speak to somebody. And yeah. it's about giving people a platform. If they're passionate about something, they can reach out to us. We'd be delighted to give them a platform to do a webinar, a course, and just yes. keep keep evoking that those passions within us as a profession because there's lots of people that are doing hygiene but or therapy but they have their little specialities which i think is amazing isn't it or as susie yeah, once once said only dental hygienists and therapists all have side hustles <laughs> maybe maybe it's to kind of keep us sane as well <laughs> so that's really well, what api is okay um so it's like a team support for hygienist therapists and yes. looking after, you know, it, it is a, it, it is, to, I suppose it's like um, to encourage everybody's development and at the same time do a kind of, uh, kind of 
looking after them as well. You know, you want to look after the team and everybody and encourage them to be the best they can be. So it's like being a, being a parent. You want to sort of say, come on now, we can all do better. Yes. And, and, um, and at the same time, when they're upset, they say, oh, no, don't mind. You know, don't worry. That's fine. We've all had these issues and this is how we resolve them. Um, and, um, and I actually think that that's almost like the best way to look after people because we have to kind of, kind of almost coax each other to do better you know it is yeah. quite easy to sit back in your laurels but then you look at other people and then they kind of enthuse you and you think okay I need to make an effort but I think more than anything else is as well when things aren't going so well that you have people that understand and can kind of help you get through difficult bits and to um, not feel that it's all your responsibility because dentistry can be a very lonely profession very lonely um, i've often felt very isolated yeah, it can so, be very lonely and patients don't understand how much responsibility we take for their care you know um okay i'm, I'm past the point where i can remember people's names anymore i used to be very good now i don't but still once somebody's in the chair um or what you know we all remember those cases that don't go well you know uh yes. or you know and and we dwell on those patients who said we were a waste of time or you know we dwell on all those kind of negativities even if 95 percent of people um say oh i think she's great and you know and, and you know really do their bit we often focus on those negative things and so if you are not in a supportive environment if you are kind of uh, you know a dental uh, therapist hygiene is working in an environment where you don't have a very supportive practice and you have a couple of days of just kind of yuck uh, bad sort of feedback or negative things or things happening it's very easy to get downbeat about that and to think oh it must be me I must you know whatever whilst if you're part of a group where you sort of can say look I had a really bad day somebody came along and this happened or that happened and this person whatever it is and for other people to reach out and say don't worry I've had far worse days etc yeah. etc you know you makes you feel better because it's coming from a community that understands there's not much point you go home saying to your other half and they say no nah, you know they're there it's fine you you don't understand um you know you aren't there and you don't think so that's support within the profession can be vital for some people especially those that are a bit isolated or a little bit less confident and they're the people we really would like to drag out to these courses to meet them in person to kind of um you know empower they, lift up yeah. yes exactly in, you in know the positive psychology world they say you know everybody has the right to be lifted up True. to a higher level yeah that, that it's everybody's human right to do that yeah and definitely the feedback was that we did achieve a lot of that from the courses which you know that was our aim because we had aims for these courses and and we were going to continue we're going to be back around the UK and Ireland over the next year so yeah. we'll be delighted for you to come and join us oh that would be lovely um lovely. I've really enjoyed it as you say, it's a series. It's a, it's a program. This was a kind of year one and year one into year yeah. two. Um, and so, um, and again, if we get feedback about what people really want to know about, um, that would, you know, that would be great. What, what kind of topics do they want? 
Yes, you know, keep giving us the feedback. Yeah, yeah as you say. And actually, one of the things this year we're really going to focus on is implant maintenance for the dental yeah. hygienists and therapists. And we've got Catherine Mayo and Jenny Walker. They're really yeah. passionate yeah. about implant maintenance. Uh, great, great ladies, aren't they? They and are. They're knowledgeable. We, again, implant maintenance is one of those things where everyone kind of almost back suddenly oh my god I don't know what to do I don't know what to do and that's partly because the profession itself hasn't known what to do and probably in truth still doesn't know what to do but those girls have been doing it for such a long time um, that they can sort of talk from experience lots of dentists and hygienist therapists don't have enough experience but it is the coming thing I mean more and more patients have implants will have implants so having the confidence to know what to do with an implant is going to be really challenging, I think, for the future. And certainly the sort of thing where hygienists really need to upskill. Um, mm -hmm. And even if that's to bat it back and say, that's completely outside my league here, because that I really see that as being a problem because nobody seems to want to get involved in implant problems and you don't want to be kind of dumped with patients with failing implants from a sort of hygienist perspective and then left to kind of get on with it. So um, if nothing else from this course, it would be a case of when to say absolutely no way uh, is this a hygiene maintenance issue. Um, and, uh, and that I think if we, if we could even get that right, I think that would be amazing. You know, yeah. learning well, what to use around there would be even better. But that's the first thing. The first thing. And they have they've an absolutely fantastic course put together. I'd highly yeah. recommend it. Yeah, exactly. So that'll be great. I look forward to that. I look forward to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Ross, it's great catching up. And yeah. we look forward to meeting you all out there across the UK and Ireland over the next year. As Ross said, please reach out to us if there's any topics you'd like to see covered. We'd be more than delighted. So thanks very much, Ross. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.